The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, the Tone Factory Recording Studios in Las Vegas, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Toffey. The Standells were an American rock band from Los Angeles formed in the early 60s who have often been referred to as the first punk band. Inspiring other bands like the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, they're best known for their song Dirty Water, which all these years later is an anthem for several Boston sports teams and is played following wins by the Red Sox and the Bruins. It was a long journey journey to get to those hit-making days, which would eventually lead to a tour with the Rolling Stones. On the line with me right now is original Standell's keyboardist and singer Larry Tamblin. Larry, welcome and th- thank you for joining me. Hopefully you and your family are doing well under the certain conditions we're living in now. Well, we're doing well. It's uh, basically my wife and I, and we uh, have a home in Palmdale, California, and uh we're in the uh, what they cons- uh, consider the high desert. You know, it. it uh, people always say, "Well, you get all the hot weather out there." We don't actually. It gets hot hotter in the San Fernando Valley than it does out here. Uh, we've lived here since uh, 2006, I think. Better there than in uh, Death Valley, I can tell you that. <laughs> oh my! Yeah, 130 <laughs> degrees. I can't even imagine it being that hot. Were you doing some live shows when the uh, pandemic hit in March? The last. The last live show I did, as a matter of fact, was uh, back in October of last year. I was scheduled to do a bunch of them this year and, uh, you know, call them off. I wouldn't do them anyway. I just don't want to take the chance. I would rather be, you know, the old saying, safe than sorry. And, uh, you know, my age, too. I'm, I'm not a youngster anymore. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'd rather just stay cooped up in my home until this all you know, kind of blows over, and hopefully yeah. it does. I think, uh, you know, people need to be aware that they're wearing masks to protect others. You know, it's, it's not as though they're being uh, punished uh, or, or made to do something. They're basically uh, doing that to be considerate of others and protect others. And uh, we try to do the same. We always wear the masks uh, whenever we go out and, and try to keep our social distancing. As far as concerts, I, I, I just... Uh, uh, that's where that stuff thrives, and any kind of concerts where there's uh, loud singing, that's where uh, COVID-19 spreads, so I want to stay away from it. <laughs> L- Larry, you grew up, what, in Los Angeles, in the in that area? Yeah, I uh, grew up in the San Fernando Valley in North Hollywood. Ra- uh, born in Inglewood, actually. Uh, family moved uh, out to the valley when I was about three years old and raised in the valley and uh, lived in the Hollywood Hills for a while and... Uh, you know, Santa Monica. Basically, I'm a California boy. What were your parents doing in those days? What were their jobs? My parents were, uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, in the early days, they were both in show business. My dad was a dancer and a singer. He did a lot of uh, vaudeville back in those days on Broadway. This is back in the 30s. Mom was a chorus girl, and uh, they met on uh, 
a show called uh, Follow Through. It was a road show for it. They uh, later got married, and their first uh, son, uh, my oldest brother, who passed away uh, about 10 years ago, Warren, they had him in New York, and then they uh, moved out to California because the stage work started drying up, and uh, he thought he could get more into films. Uh, he did a few films, uh, one of the early Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers film called Flying Down to Rio, and he had just a bit part in that. A few other films, and then it just kind of dried up, and so dad got into uh, uh, back then it was a forerunner to aerospace they were working on uh, uh, gyroscopes for planes uh, the name of the company was Whitaker Gyro that he worked for mom uh, was basically uh, you know housewife she kind of ran the house like it used to be you know it's it's no secret that you and your brother both kind of got into the business w- were they encouraging that did you say that this is kind of what we want to do too I think uh, you know, with my brother, it was especially hard because, uh, you know, dad had such a, a rotten experience with, with the show business. And then when uh, Russ started showing an inclination, uh, you know, to acting and you could you couldn't keep him away from money. He would he would go to the movie theaters uh, in uh, in North Hollywood and during the intermission, go up there and put on a show for everybody. Wow. Uh, discovered by Lloyd Bridges, uh, who had him in a play uh, called uh, Stone Jungle. In fact, both of us uh, sons used to come out and see him, uh, Bo and uh, Jeff, I mean. So, uh, and he went from there. With me, I wanted to be an actor like my brother. You know, Russ is about uh, uh, nine and a half years my senior. My older brother and uh, and really my mentor, my dad, uh, passed away when I was 14. You know, Russ, I kind of looked up to, and uh, he kind of showed me the ropes. I really wanted to be an actor like him. And I found out that, uh, you know, in fact, I was in a couple of things when I was a kid, I uh, was in a TV show, uh, just a small part of an old TV series called Big Town. And uh, Russ got me mm-hmm. a part in that. And uh, and I acted, uh, you know, for a little bit. I never saw it, by the way. Uh, and I think I was <laughs> eight or nine years old, never saw it. Uh, so that was my, you know, experience, except with the Standells, of course, uh, with acting. But I fell into music. Uh, I seem to have uh, basically a, a knack for it. I remember about the first attempt I had was uh, right about the same time the uh, that television show came out, uh, as a matter of fact. The reason we didn't see it is we were traveling up north, up in the Seattle area, and uh, we happened to uh, go into a, um, a movie theater. We were watching the show, and back then, you uh, generally had, uh, you know, uh, two features. Uh, you, you know, you had a, a, a major feature, and then you had an intermission show of some kind, and then a B movie of some kind. And uh, so the intermission, uh, they were having a talent show. This is all pre-planned, you know. And I was, like I said, about eight or nine. And uh, MC said, "Now, is there anybody in the in the audience that has talent that would like to come up and be in our show?" You know, I'm a stupid kid. I didn't know. Uh, and so I walked <laughs> up there. My whole family was just sitting there with their mouths open. My two brothers, <laughs> and they couldn't believe it. And I walked up there, and they actually had a band there. And uh, I did an old song called Four Leaf Clover. I guess they thought it was so cute, this uh, eight-year-old kid uh, singing Four Leaf Clover. I actually won the, the uh, top award. Did you kind of fall into then playing in uh, bands in high school, little rock bands? It's actually before that. The first uh, interest in bands uh, and, and music and being a musician was in uh, 
middle school or junior high. I went to Sun Valley Junior High School. They uh, had uh, a school assembly and uh, there was a jazz band playing and uh, they were on a break and uh, silly me, I, I go w- walk up on the uh, on the stage there and grab this guy's guitar that's sitting there and if, it were, if that was my guitar, I would have just nailed him. But yeah. uh, anyway, uh, I grabbed it and uh, I didn't play guitar and I, and I did kind of an Elvis Presley uh, uh, routine <laughs> imitation of the bumps and grinds and my friends all got a kick out of it the, the teachers didn't like it too much i got in a lot of trouble <laughs> that kind of sparked my interest uh, in that and i started my mom got me a guitar and uh i would just play it day and night and, and learn some basic chords on it and enough to start writing my own songs and so uh you know and then i eventually had uh, put a band together by the time i was in high school and we played a lot of uh, high school hops and uh in different uh, uh, weddings out here. It's uh, a lot of uh, Hispanic quinceañadas uh, and things like right. that. Right. And back then, in fact, an acquaintance of mine was uh, Richie Valens. Yeah. I met him on several occasions. I was just uh, really amazed with his talent. It was just such a talented guy, you know. Not the greatest looking guy in the world, but boy, did he have the talent. And when he, when he strapped on that guitar, he was actually a great guitar player, too. And he it was just he just uh, glowed uh, so when I saw him perform. So I really looked up to him. He was a few years older than me, but we would compete for some of the gigs around the uh, around the valley. Eventually, you know, he got discovered. Of course, uh, yeah, he had his hit records out, and uh, that's when I really decided that you know I wanted to make something of myself. I had a band together. Like I said, we were playing hops, but I wanted to go on and do more. A bunch of us got together you know, from high school. Uh, I was. With a, went to high school with a bunch of talented uh, uh, people. Some of them went on to uh, become names uh, in themselves. A couple of my friends became a group called The Innocents. They made a hit record called Honest I Do. They were with teamed up with Kathy Young, Kathy Young and The Innocents, Thousand Stars in the Sky. It was a top 10 record. And they were all friends of mine. But I had all these people around me that were making it big and show business, and I felt kind of left behind. You know, I just wasn't going fast enough for me. A bunch of my friends friends, uh, we decided to go over to uh, uh, Richie Valens' uh, label, the one he was with, audition for him. We didn't bother to make an appointment or anything. We just went over there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was Delphi Records, if you, uh, if you remember. Okay. Went over there, and they didn't want to have anything to do with us. Wouldn't see us, you know. So what we did... And by the way, who is us? I mean, are these any of the guys who would eventually join you in the Standells? Uh, no, no. These were just high school friends. A couple of them were one of the uh, one of the innocents uh, before they became famous. Another guy that reminded me of uh, uh, Ken Mallory. They were just high school friends. They sang. They all kind of did doo-wop stuff. Since they refused to see us, we went over uh, and uh, went down into the men's restroom and set up down there. <laughs> <laughs> and made uh, quite a quite a racket, uh, I must say. Uh, they. Uh, <laughs> They uh, they weren't uh, uh, too pleased with us. And no. <laughs> in fact, uh, what happened is they finally agreed to audition us just because of so many people complained. We we came to the rec- recording studio and uh, and the owner of the label. He was uh, pretty famous. He he produced uh, Richie and a uh, number of people. Anyway, had us record first, and then he came in a little while later. Well, this was after Richie's death, by the way. The song I chose, song that I 
wrote called Rockin' in the Cemetery, which was not the most appropriate song. <laughs> <laughs> which was not the most appropriate song to do at that time. No, no. I write about that. I have a book coming out, by the way. It's not published yet, but I write about this experience because you look back at it and, and you got to laugh uh, at this bunch of kids, you know, trying their best to, to uh, make an impression on somebody, but not making the right best choices <laughs> no no but it was a it was a bold move to set up in the bathroom like you did yeah yeah exactly it was a bold move and uh we thought we would get someplace you know he came in uh, after we recorded the song and uh he picked up the lyrics before he even listened to the record he just really came unglued with the fucking lyrics <laughs> said a few choice words and threw all the sheets of music up in the air and left. That was our experience with uh, with Delphi Records. It's something I remember to this day. You know, it was very disappointing. <laughs> but you can laugh about it all these years later. Oh, well, of course. And so, uh, you know, they still uh, never let up, even though uh, after Richie's death, I got very uh, disillusioned with uh, with music for a while. Uh, yeah. My heart was so broken with Ian buddy holly and uh yes it was really a downer but uh but i started doing you know various uh, music gigs one thing led to another and i auditioned uh, for a guy named eddie davis who at that time had uh, rampart records linda was another one and feral records he liked me so i was a uh, I was at that time uh, a junior in high school and uh, recorded my first record for Eddie, uh, and uh, it, it was uh, called Dearest. It was my very first recording. It was quite an experience, and I had a bunch of uh, great musicians, and I can't think of everybody, but some of them were, you know, members of uh, the Wrecking Crew. Oh, nice. You know, Plas Johnson, which is, who is just one of the greatest stacks. Oh, sure. So he, he did that little uh, thing in uh, in the Pink Panther at that end. Yeah, and he was just a great sax player. I, I'm, I'm quite familiar with all those guys. And as a matter of fact, I, I just interviewed Carol Kay not too long ago, the great oh, bass player. Wow. Yeah, yeah, we knew a lot of the same people. I haven't talked with Carol, but uh, we, we worked with a lot of the same people. Put the record out. It didn't do a whole lot. I did a, a few more recordings, and then did one called "This Is the Night," uh, which was uh, had a little bit better reception. Uh, it actually went uh, to number one in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they still play it today. As a matter of fact, you can uh, find my music. Just look up Larry Tamblin on YouTube, and uh, there's a bunch of my songs people have put up. Uh, from the old days, uh, pre-Scandells. It was, uh, I was, uh, in fact, the first big show I did, which I write about in my book, was right about the time I had This Is The Night Out. Uh, Eddie Davis uh, got me in a show along with Connie Francis, who was huge back then. Wow. Yeah. Lipstick on my collar. And I mean, she just, every song she made was number one. Sure. And uh, so she's kind of my idol. So I got to do a show with her up in uh, San Francisco. I'll never forget this. In fact, I still have it here. But uh, we um, arrived at the San, we flew up there and arrived at the San Francisco airport. She had just finished up uh, previously to that, had been on a long tour. And she was just exhausted. She and I went to get a, a coat at the airport there. And she started becoming dizzy and she suddenly fainted and i caught her in my arms now here's here's a 
a 16-year-old kid with his idol in his arms, <laughs> testosterone-laden kid with his idol in his arms, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, I, and uh, it was just something that every kid would have dreamed of. And she was just, uh, I, I got her over to a, a, a sofa and, and got her a glass of water, and she recovered okay, but she was just so appreciative of that. She uh, wrote me an autographed photo. She said, to Larry, my hero, follow your star. I think I really did follow my star after that. Uh, that went from one thing to another. Uh, was introduced to a couple of guys through Eddie Davis. Uh, we're looking for. Uh, by then, I had switched over to uh, keyboards. I found that uh, most of my music involved keyboards. Uh, I was writing most of my music um, on keyboards, so I fell into it. I found out there was also actually more need of keyboardists than there were guitarists. Uh, everybody played guitar back then. I introduced to a couple of guys. They're looking for a keyboardist singer, so I joined. Them. Them. The name of that group was uh, the Starlighters. Uh, had nothing to do with Joey D and the Starlighters. We did a couple of gigs, and uh, that group kind of fell apart. We reformed. We didn't have a name. Uh, we were uh, going around to agencies, uh, you know, trying to get work. We had to come up with a, a name real quickly for this one agent because they seemed to be really interested. And so we were all standing around, uh, you know, just trying to uh, get work. And so. Uh, we call ourselves a standell. <laughs> Plus a couple of uh, our names that had L's in them, like me. That was our name. They didn't actually, they didn't have anything for us. Uh, we went into, a, they had a little studio in which we auditioned. You can find that first recording we did was never released. Call I'm Walking in the Night. That's on YouTube. It was just uh, like like about five years ago, uh, my friend over at Sundays uh, had dug it up. He gets everything over there. Bob Irwin, he's just a wonderful guy. So he dug it up and sent it to me. Just to me, those things are a treasure. And so I put... Yes. We went to this other agency, McConkie Artists. They just had an opening. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, was owned by Gail McConkie and her husband. When we first joined them, you know, they booked us on a couple of gigs. And then right during that, they had a marriage split up. And <laughs> <laughs> they had booked us at a nightclub. Mac McConkie called the nightclub and told them we were all underage, which we were. So they wouldn't let us perform. So uh, she did have an opening uh, in this club in Hawaii. group that they had going in there had uh, just canceled out for some reason. So still like 19 years old. And, uh, you know, uh, in fact, I was, believe it or not, reading uh, James A. Michener's uh, Hawaii at the time. <laughs> wow. I would uh, end up there. So they booked us over there. It was um, a, a complete show. Uh, we alternated with a kabuki uh, theater uh, with dancers, <laughs> uh, Japanese entertainers, comedians, and a stripper. <laughs> the stripper, Mickey Moto, and we came on right after the stripper. Right. That was a tough act to follow. I wanted to... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But eventually, we built up a following. People actually came to see us rather than the strippers. So, you know, we were there for, oh, about four months, and we gained quite a following. At that time, the members of the group were me, Tony Valentino, a guy by the name of Jody Rich, Benny King, the drummer. Jody was a real tyrant. He was a short guy. He, you know, he uh, just really difficult to deal with. Uh, mm -hmm. He looked like Napoleon in the end. <laughs> and uh, he was older than the rest of us, too, and uh, married. So he was really jealous of all the, the girls we'd pick up on. So he set a, a curfew that we had to be in by certain hours. Sure. <laughs> really clamping down on us. And it was just all because he was jealous, you know. And then the guy started popping up Benny's, you know, and, and uh, started staying awake all night and and uh, going bananas. And then had all, had all these songs he wanted us to do. But 
I was singing all of them. It's like, I'm going to learn a hundred songs, you know, uh, you know, to sing. We eventually parted ways with him uh, and uh, when we left Hawaii and uh, formed with two other guys, Gary Lee, Gary uh, McMillan, and he, he changed his name uh, to Gary Lane. Those are the two guys that uh, we did a lot of stuff with and we played up and down uh, Southern California. Some real dives we played in uh, like Fresno. I remember that one. Uh, right after Hawaii, too. What a letdown. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, anything would be, right? Yeah, yeah, especially coming from Hawaii, but going to them during the foggy season and <laughs> it was depressing to begin with. And then the club was right near the railroad tracks, you know, so <laughs> every so often you hear the train go by and it would be rattling the building. And if that weren't bad enough, we played for about six people a night. At one time, this 300-pound um, woman was drunk and passed out on the stage. <laughs> it wouldn't have been so bad, except nobody could move her. He had to step over her all night to perform, you know, and get on and off the stage. Finally, she sobered up and, and rolled off the stage. <laughs> and so we did a bunch of gigs like that, and eventually the gigs got better and better until we, we gained somewhat of a following. Uh, we're talking about 1962, uh, uh, 1963, uh, where where we started to, like I said, uh, you know, develop a, a following and get demands from, from different clubs. And the way I understand it, too, is that you had gotten a hold of some early publicity shots of the Beatles before they even came here to the United States. And it was at that point you guys decided to kind of fashion yourselves after that type of look with longer hair and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, getting to that. We uh, eventually uh, wound up playing it. Uh, PJs in Hollywood. That's when we got a hold of these uh, uh, photos of the Beatles. Uh, at that time, they were unknown here in the United States. And we just really dug the, the long locks. So grew our hair out. They actually hung signs outside the Peppermint West called uh, Beatlemania. <laughs> we were drawn in lots of crowds. Uh, when the, uh, That was right about the time the Beatles uh, suddenly took off. I mean, just within a matter of a couple of weeks, they were on the Ed Sullivan show, and they just took off overnight. You know, we had several photos uh, uh, taken uh, uh, early 1964. One, I think, was uh, very late 1963, where we actually did the Beatles pose from the Meet the Beatles album. You can find those uh, photos on the, actually on the yeah. Dell's Facebook page. It was at PJ's that uh, we had been playing there for, uh, you know, uh, a good year. This guy came in and uh, said, hey, if I can get you guys on Liberty Records, will you let me manage you? And we didn't know him, didn't know a thing about him, but we said, yeah, you can get us on Liberty Records. <laughs> that guy was Bert Jacobs. And uh, Bert was, um, you'll get a kick out of this, being in Las Vegas. He was a he was a bookie. <laughs> <laughs> not not necessarily the legal kind? No, no, not necessarily the legal kind. He, uh, in fact, it was through his illegal dealings that we got on Liberty because he took all the guys' bets from Liberty Records, all the producers there, and uh, <laughs> a lot of the bigwigs, and a lot of them were into to quite a bit of money uh, for their bets. And uh, so they owed him some favors, and that's how we got on the label. That's the truth. And uh, sight unseen, you know, they put us on. By the way, playing at a place like PJ's for as long as you did, it, it probably served you well, didn't it? Because it's it reminds me of when the Beatles played for so many shows in Hamburg that it, it really probably added a lot of polish to your performance. Well, you 
you know, there's one thing to be said about, uh, you know, doing all those clubs and, and doing them nightly and working four or five hours a night is that you really get tight. That's one of the problems. Uh, I've said this often enough. Uh, today's groups, they, you know, they hardly know each other. And in some cases, they don't know each other and they get thrown together. I can name so many groups like that. And, you know, they might have some success, but they're, you know, here today, gone tomorrow because, they don't gel uh, together, uh, like the Beatles, uh, for instance. They played together, like you said, in Hamburg and yeah, yeah. all those clubs for for several years before they had a hit record, and uh, so did we. And PJ's was, you know, was was it? I mean, we were drawn in large crowds, and then, uh, you know, we made our first recording uh, for Liberty Records. It was called The Shake, but you know, it was a song I wrote and sang. Paired us up with a wrong producer, uh, Dick Glasser. He was he was more of a, a pop producer, and he. Did just didn't have the, the kind of feel that we needed, I don't think. He took my song and, and rearranged it, and it was just terrible. I mean, uh, you know, he, it was almost sounded like a, a polka to me. Yeah. <laughs> Clavinet solo on it, you know, and uh, it, it was really supposed to be a loud, raunchy rocker like uh, Joey D and the Starlighters. Shake, Shout was their song, their big song, and which was the Isaac Brothers hit. That was how it was intended to be just this loud, raunchy rock song, and he turned it into a a polka, you know, and uh, with a clavinet solo, and he had uh, doo-wop singers in the background singing, ooh-wee, ooh-wee, ooh. Don't do that with a, a, that kind of a raunchy song, and he, I think he ruined it. And uh, the other side was uh, called the Peppermint Beetle, which I wrote and sang, you know, we're trying to capitalize on the Beatles. And, uh, sure. So uh, it was during this that we did gain quite a following. We actually did the, uh, at that time, when we were PJs, uh, we did the Regis Philbin show. Yeah, that, uh, at that time, he took over the Steve Allen show. It was syndicated throughout the nation, and we did uh, a, uh, a New Year's Eve show on Regis Philbin. So we went from PJs to um, uh, Burt Buckus in, in um, Las Vegas at the Thunderbird Lounge. The geniuses there, they, um, they uh, uh, booked us out. As America's answer to the Beatles. <laughs> Believe it or not, I mean, uh, you know, because we had long hair, you know, the Standells weren't, uh, you know, the the name uh, quite yet. And uh, so they booked us as uh, the Standells, America's answer to the Beatles. The publicity was that we were um, we were there uh, to uh, on our way to uh, London to challenge the Beatles. I mean, what were we going to do? I mean, <laughs> to go, you know, land in, in, in Heathrow and say, come on, you guys, come on, let's have a battle of the bands, you know. Uh, this is the PR they used, and uh, it was so stupid, but uh, uh, <laughs> some large crowds there. Again, got a lot of publicity out of it, and we were booked from there to uh, this bigger club, uh, PJ's in Hollywood. Right, right. When did you get to the point where you split ways with that producer and you would become, you'd work with Ed Cobb, who cer certainly seemed to know what you guys were all about? Well, during this time, uh, we uh, we left Liberty. Bert knew what was happening. Put us uh, with, uh, we were still with, uh, with Liberty uh, when we went to PJ's. We had a live album there. But uh, you think somebody could screw up a live album? Uh, Dick Glasser did. Uh, <laughs> and took a great album and just ruined it. You know, first of all, he sped the thing up to make it more exciting. And back then, if you just speed up something, you, you, you increase the pitch. So 
you know, my opinion, of course, I'm my, my own worst critic. You know, I sounded like Mickey Mouse rather than Larry Tamlin. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think it showed. They, they later re-released the album and, and slowed it down to its correct speed. But uh, wow. the album was the, the Standells. I have it right here on my wall. The Standells in person at PJ's. We did, a, you know, a lot of covers of songs. Funny because a lot of the critics say we were a cover band. Everybody, everybody was a cover band back then. Even sure. Even were a cover band. Right. Paul Revere and the Raiders built their career on that. They were cover bands. Right. right. Everybody had played, you know, clubs uh, back then. Uh, U2, before they became famous with cover bands. It's just the way it was. You played clubs and people wanted to hear hits, you know, and uh, uh, they didn't want to hear original stuff. We parted after that live album. We parted ways with uh, Liberty and Dick Glasser, but then they they uh, signed us uh, with uh, BJ Records. Remember them? Sure. They were a huge label with uh, with a, a, a big R and B uh, catalog. Just about everybody uh, under the sun. And then he also had uh, earlier they had uh, they had some of the Beatles uh, catalog on. Right. When they became a hit, they were doing you know quite well. But then they moved their uh, facility out to Hollywood, and that's the mistake they made. They overextended themselves. And uh, they signed us, and we did a, a couple of recordings. But again, we were paired up with the wrong producer. Sonny Bono produced us. And uh, in fact, Cher sang uh, background vocals on some of them along with me and a couple of others. Sonny was a, a protege of uh, Phil Spector. He learned yeah. from Phil Spector. So he had the wall of sound, you know, for Sandell's first record uh, called The Boy Next Door. It was a ballad. I sang it, and I never was comfortable with it uh, because, you know, I'm not a, uh, a Bill Medley type of singer, and I don't pretend to be. And that was really meant for Bill uh, to sing that song, and uh, Sonny wrote it. We did a couple more recordings. In fact, one of them was uh, Big Boss Man, which Dick Dodd sang lead on, and that was more like what we should have been doing. But by then, BJ uh, was folding, and uh, they went bankrupt, as a matter of fact. So we parted ways pretty quickly with them, and that's about the time we met uh, Dick, uh, Ed Cobb. Ed was, uh, in fact, used to be with uh, with VJ uh, as a uh, associate producer, and had a few things with them, and uh, so he's uh, very familiar with us. He had a, a production company called uh, uh, Adirac Greengrass Productions. They had several names. Ed's previous uh, hits uh, were with like uh, Kenny Lester, Kenny Lester, and uh, some fairly uh, you know, regional hits. So we signed with him. I really liked working with Ed at first. He was just, he he listened for a change. You know, he didn't dictate. And he was like a, a, a part of the group. And he really listened to our ideas. In fact, he brought us this song, Dirty Water. You know, didn't like it when we heard it. Uh, it was it was just a standard blues song. Ed sang it as a demo. And uh, of course, Ed was one of the original four preps. So he didn't really have a rock. Oh, okay boys to begin with but i said to ed i said you know let us see what we can do with it you know maybe we'll do it you know the band members uh got together and came up with the, the, the what you hear now you know tony invented the, the famous guitar lick uh which you know most oh, so good learn the first thing they learn you know dick sang lead on it uh he uh, invented, he wrote a lot of the lyrics, uh, a lot of the, the, the clever uh, sides on it. I'm going to tell you a story, it's all about my town. I'm going to right. teach that story, baby, it's all about my town. And then all the comments, um, oh, that's what's happening, baby, uh, and all those, <laughs> which really made the song. He came up with that. Uh, I altered the chord structure uh, quite a bit uh, from what it was. Uh, very subtle stuff. If you're a musician, you know the difference between uh, a straight seventh and an extended seventh. Uh, 
uh-huh. put in. And uh, uh, so I made that uh, a little different, you know, and Tony did his harmonica solo, which is almost the same solo he did in, in, in uh, Big Boss Man, as a matter of fact. You could lay the two side by side and it sounds the same. And we did that. And um, the, and the other song we recorded uh, was Rary. It took a few days in the studio. And of course, you, when you do these things, you never know what the repercussions are or what will happen with them. And uh, So when you listen to the finished product of Dirty Water, you, you didn't realize what a monster song this would be? No, none of us did. Uh, yeah. You know, we were happy with what we did, but we never thought it would amount to anything. So we continued to do uh, uh, club gigs. Uh, we recorded that, as a matter of fact, uh, in this uh, garage studio. And uh, believe it or not, you know, this, this garage <laughs> studio, they had a lot of hits out of there. A lot of Paul Revere and the Raiders early stuff was done there. It's appropriate because it's one of the great garage rock songs ever, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because of the terminology of garage rock, it wasn't around back then. It was just rock and roll. You know, that didn't come around until the uh, 80s, 90s, around there. But... Uh, so we recorded a song and uh, and then didn't think any more about it and, and actually forgot about it. We continued to play clubs uh, up and down California and then go back to PJs and then... Were people recognizing Dick Dodd at that point as being a former Mouseketeer? You know, it's uh, it's funny. Uh, uh, he always he used to, he got ra- he auditioned for us. You know, our drummer uh, Gary Leeds, who changed his name to Gary Walker, became one of the Walker brothers. Right. He left the group. He quit us suddenly, and he made a, a cockamamie story about he was being drafted in the army. There's no such thing. He <laughs> together with these John Engels and uh, and Scott formed the Walker brothers. John Moss. That's what I'm thinking of. And Scott Engels. They did the very thing. In fact. Uh, that uh, the Las Vegas uh, PR people were laid out for us. They actually went to London and they made a big deal about it and arrived there and they became huge hits. Yeah. You know, so they did the exact opposite uh, and and did very well there. They didn't do as well here. Anyway, Dick uh, auditioned for us and it was like a couple of weeks before we had to do this album. And uh, so we're really desperate. Well, we wanted to find the right guy. And and Dick sat down behind the drums. Uh, I just know he was the right person. He was so good. Kind of a jerk you know, young punk, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, he was like 17 years old at the time, and uh, he really fit in, and then when he started singing, it blew me away. I'd always dreamed of having a drummer that could sing, you know, because the other two guys couldn't sing. So it'd be somebody to take the load off my shoulders, and uh, little did I know, he would take most of the load off my shoulders. Right. Eventually. So as Dirty Water is climbing the charts, the Rolling Stones invite the Standells on their tour? Yeah, we uh, we had been touring before that. In fact, gone right from a, a nightclub in Seattle where we recorded the Dirty Water album, by the way. And we went right from there to uh, on tour to do our own tour. And it was quite a wild tour because, you know, Bert was booking them uh, as we went along. Got back home after, you know, touring for, you know, uh, uh, you know, about six months, uh, you know, all sorts of odd places, and uh, but making money and, and playing for teenagers instead of adults. So it was quite a different experience for us. Got back home, and and, uh, and that's when uh, Bert told us, uh, called us into a meeting at his office, and he said, uh, guess what? I got some news for you guys, and he had a big smile on his face. And uh, I said, well, what's up? And he, he rose from his chair, and uh, he said, you guys have been signed to be on the Rolling Stones tour and uh we about <laughs> all fell over from the shock you know yeah just the bee's knees for us 
and uh, so that's when we learned about it. So we said, well, when do we begin? When, when do we begin? He says, tomorrow. <laughs> so we had to all turn around, you know, and get the flights out and everything. You know, we, we flew to New York. We still had a, a, a few days to prepare and uh, actually went uh, shopping for, uh, you know, new uniform jackets. Uh, we were still wearing the uniform jackets. It was really the stones that kind of got everybody away from wearing uniforms. Yeah. The Beatles were doing it. We went to uh, Greenwich Village and found some jackets over there. This guy said they just came in off the ship and nobody else has them, you know. So we liked them and we uh, we bought the jackets. So it was uh, several days later, we uh, finally meet the Stones on the on the plane. They had a chartered plane. We were uh, went to our seats and in walked the McCoys. Uh, oh, nice. Brother uh, Randy. They had the same jackets with them. <laughs> All of the same bill of goods. <laughs> that nobody else had them. And <laughs> <laughs> so we had to alternate with them to, to uh, you know, wear these uh, <laughs> jackets every other show. Oh, that's hysterical. But it was, uh, it was a wild tour, uh, and, and uh, you know, Dirty Water was uh, uh, right about then, you know, uh, on the top of the bill, Billboard charts. It, it reached, uh, in June, it reached the, the uh, top ten, or pretty close to it anyway. You also toured with The Doors, right? Or, or played a show with The Doors, I should say. Yeah, well, after the Stones tour, uh, which was wild, uh, we did uh, a bunch of shows, and uh, one of them was uh, in Hollywood. But The Doors, uh, it was at uh, high school, and that was quite wild. Uh, I have a funny story that I tell in my book uh, about Jim Morrison. Uh, we were all backstage. Uh, Lowell High School was the name of the, the school, and we were all backstage. And all of a sudden, it got really quiet, and everybody turned around. There was Jim Morrison, who had walked in the back door. The reason they turned around was not because of his aura. It was because of the smell. <laughs> he had this leather suit that he wore, and I don't think he ever got out of it. No. It was pretty rich. Uh <laughs> Yeah, and I hate to ruin his image uh, because he's, you know, great talent. There's no question about it. But, uh, yeah, we were on that show with them, and, um, you know, he was really wild and all over the place. We didn't swing from the rafters like he did. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. You know, I also remember seeing you guys on some TV appearances. There's one that I saw recently on YouTube, and you were on the Mike Douglas show. It was very cool, and Diane Carroll was was a guest, and she was just fascinated by you guys. The name of the song, Dirty Water, and, and your performance, she just, you could tell, she just thought this was great. Oh, and she was just a wonderful lady. We yeah. Quite a bit uh, before and after the show, and just very accommodating and very down to earth. So were the rest of the guests on there. They were all really wonderful. And this was uh, this show, by the way, was done when we were first toured even, uh, before the uh, Stones were called to do the show. And uh, what was remarkable about that particular show, it was done live. You know, most of the shows, right. yeah, they weren't set up to do live performances, and you know, they basically had to lip sync. And uh, they were in the Mike Douglas show. They were set up to do live, and uh, that's why uh, it's uh, uh, sick such significance uh and i didn't come across the video for that until like years later uh so 
So to me, to, to, you know, to see that, you know, to see the little interview we did and uh, was quite, uh, uh, quite funny and, uh, and quite treasured by me. I, I always enjoy finding these things after the fact. You know, it was just a couple of weeks ago. There was your the Standells appearance on the Munsters was on TV. And it's it's really great because it, it was a big spot for you guys. You actually performed, I think, a couple songs. And uh, but it's interesting because they were Beatles songs, weren't they? Yeah. And a lot of people uh, we've gotten a lot of flack about that. Well, why didn't you do your songs? You know, uh, you know, the the, the, the the truth was this was uh, a good year before we recorded Dirty Water. And Mickey. Right. We were basically uh, still unknowns. We were still playing in PJs at the time we did uh, uh, the Munsters. We did several shows, uh, the Munsters and the Bing Crosby show and uh, Ben Casey. But with the Munsters, it was really neat because we got the accent of it as well. Yeah. And play ourselves and use our own names. Yeah, we did Beatles songs because we had to, not because we wanted to. We were told what songs to do. So that's why. Uh, and it seems it seems like that was a would have been a great cast to uh, get to know. I saw a picture of you guys posing with uh, Al Lewis, Grandpa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Al is just great. They all were. You know, the, you, you get the, those old professionals like that, and they were all just really wonderful. I work met so well coming up through a show business family and through my brother. I met so many great actors uh, that were just all kind and generous that people don't know about. Great names like George Chakaris, who played in, in, in uh, sure. a story with, uh, with Russ. He's still a friend today, and he's a friend of mine, too. And just a wonderful sweet, kind, dear person, you know, and unlike the part he played in the movie, well, the same thing with uh, with the actors on that show. They were just all wonderful people, and uh, Fred Gwynn was just very charming, although I think he was trying to pick up on my wife <laughs> back then. Uh, right. And a lot of them succeeded, too. <laughs> but uh, he was very nice. And Butch, uh, Butch Patrick uh, is a good friend of mine today, as a matter of fact. We communicate quite often. Oh, that's great. Well, when did you guys become aware that Dirty Water was used as a, kind of a sports anthem in Boston, as it should have been? Well, uh, it wasn't until years later after, you know, uh, after the Standells had kind of, you know, died down and, and uh, all but dead and buried, let's say, uh, the group uh, broke up basically right around uh, 1970. Uh, Dick Dodd left the group and went out on his own and became a miserable failure. <laughs> uh, just made a terrible album. And, and Ed Cobb, uh, by then, Ed Cobb was impossible to work with. He became uh, very dictatorial. It, it was a different Ed Cobb than the one we first met with. Uh -huh. And uh, and it wouldn't even talk to us when we go in the studio. And it was very much to himself. You know, he was really under the impression by then that Dick Dodd was the whole group and then the rest of us were sidemen you know without realizing hey you know larry has a background all right <laughs> so dick uh, left the group i'm sure ed cobb and ray harris had a lot to do with that dick went stayed with them and uh ed recorded this this horrible album uh went to uh, atlanta to record it had him do pop songs and it's just well anybody that hears it uh just the, the panda it was so bad and he blew it, you know, basically. And but 
you know, uh, that was uh, about the time we uh, had to use different musicians. In 1968, Lowell George was with us for a while. Wow. For about six months. And uh, we went through various musicians and eventually just kind of died out. Couldn't get uh, signed with a record label because, uh, you know, they had claimed since they had Dick Dodd that they had rights to the name. And we had to involved on a big lawsuit. And uh, by the time it was over, nobody cared. We could have been with uh, ABC, uh, ABC Dunhill. In fact, we had a deal with them. And, uh, and they called him up and threatened him, and, uh, and so we couldn't sign with him. And that time, oh, it was a big label. They had, you know, Three Dog Night and, uh, uh, you know, a number of big acts. Unfortunately, it just, uh, it's the way things happen, you know, and I don't regret anything. Uh, but later on, uh, years later, you know, we, we uh, fell apart. And then long about uh, the 80s, then the, then the whole 60s thing started to reemerge. Suddenly, uh, you know, the group, which I thought at that time was dead and buried, I never would have imagined that it started to have a revival. And suddenly I started reading about the Standells and all these music trades and groups that compared themselves to the Standells. And I'm saying, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> and, you know, groups like there were the punk rock groups like the Pandora's uh, girls group and uh, the Stooges. And uh, yeah, the I know the Ramones and the Sex Pistols have said inspiration all modeled themselves after us. And I couldn't believe it. So it was quite a revival. And so we started to get interest. Uh, we did some uh, several reunion gigs. But eventually, uh, come, uh, you know, the 90s, you know, we were doing gigs every once in a while but uh out of the blue you know i get a call from the red sox uh wanting us to come there and perform their first world series in like 50 years there's a lot of things going on i was called on a friday to uh get the band when we hadn't been together for a couple of years they said how would you like like to perform at the the game tomorrow and so you know and they paid us for doing it you know so guys together and uh, you know just miraculously they were all still around we flew to uh, boston performed for this huge crowd just went nuts over us, you know, because we were just like godhood. And uh, <laughs> I hate to imitate the Beatles here, but uh, right. uh, you cannot live in Boston and Massachusetts and not know about the Standells. Right. We we're part of the lore there. They talk about the Standells when they do the duck boat tours uh, on the Charles River. Talk about the Standells along, wow. you know, other luminaries, uh, uh, you know, Paul Revere, and uh, not Paul, Paul Revere and the Raiders, but. The Paul, the Paul Revere, right? You know, other famous uh, luminaries, and they talk about the Standell. You know, that's been quite a connection there. They had us back uh, about three or four times after that. Most uh, every World Series they had, and the latest one I think we did was the one in 2013, I think. That is so great. Do you have a title for your book yet, or, or and do you know how when it will be released? The title of the book, believe it or not, is called "From Squeaky Clean to Dirty Water." <laughs> it's a play on words. Because because, you know, there was a, a couple of music critics, a good friend of mine, uh, Richie Utterberger, who's a Facebook friend. Uh, he deemed us that, called us squeaky clean, because because we had this clean-cut image, uh, you know, before recorded Dirty Water. But th- what they didn't realize is that we had long hair before that, and we were the first American group to have long hair. And uh, we had to cut the, our long hair off to play in PJs. They didn't right. want us to have long hair. right be a house band that's why we cut it off and we still it was still kind of long but it wasn't the way it was uh you know when we played in in, in uh peppermint west so do you have a release date for the book when we can no uh... it's still shopping at uh we okay just begun to shop it uh with uh around to publishers you know if uh 
it's a niche kind of thing. It's not it's not going to uh, it's not going to be you know of interest to uh, some of the major publishers. Uh, it's going to be of interest to the ones that really are into punk rock, garage rock. Well, I can't wait to uh, get my hands on it, and I also encourage Larry people to go back and find some of your earlier songs. I mean, it's a treasure trove. It's there's such great material there, and I have to tell you, it's just been an honor to talk to you. I, I'm so glad that uh, you were able to spend so much time with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I could, you know, I could talk for days on this. A lot of fun times uh, back then and um, did a lot of stupid things. Uh, <laughs> and I don't regret any of it because that's who I am today. You know, I'm perfectly whole and sane today and uh, and I'm happy with where I am and I'm still doing music stuff. I compose music for uh motion pictures and, and uh, do editing sound design. Uh, it was a pleasure, like I say, and an honor. I hope, uh, wish you the best of luck and uh, maybe we can talk again sometime. Okay, well, thank you so much for calling. Thanks, Larry. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Bye. The story of the Standells, you know, it might be like a lot of bands where they had a few hits and then broke up, but that great song, Dirty Water, has really taken on a life of its own. And if you've never heard some of the early Standells material, you owe it to your Yourself to check it out on YouTube or Spotify. Their library is wonderful and maybe a little bit ahead of its time. I'm looking forward to Larry Tamblin's book on the Standells and his amazing showbiz family. That does it for this episode of the Fake Show Podcast. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you next time. Take the Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. Come on in.